نحمده ونستعين به ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم All praise is due to Allah. We praise Him and seek His help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in Allah Most High from the evils of our own selves and from our own wicked deeds. Whoever Allah guides cannot be misguided. And whoever He leads astray cannot be guided. I testify that there is no true God worthy of being worshipped except Allah without a partner or an associate. I further testify that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his true slave and messenger. May Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam be also granted to the Prophet of your family and to all of his noble companions. Ya ayuhal ladhina amanu attaqullaha haqqa tuqatihi wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun. O you who believe. Fear Allah, as he should be feared, and by not accept in the state of Islam as Muslims, with complete submission to Allah. Ya ayyuhal nasu attaqu rabbakum al-lazhi khalaqakum min nafsin wahida, wa khalaqa minha zawjaha, wa basta minhuma rijalan kathira wa nisaa, wa attaqu allaha al-lazhi tasa'anuna bihi wal-arham, inna allaha kana alaykum raqiba. O mankind, be beautiful to your Rabb Allah. Who created you from a single person, as Adam. And from him, Adam, he created his wife. And from them both, he created many men and women. And fear Allah through whom you demand your mutual rights. And do not cut the relations of whom the kinship. For surely Allah is ever an all watcher over you. Ya ayuhaladina amanu attaqullaha wa kulu qawlan sadida. Yuslih lakum a'malakum. ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما. أيها الذين keep your duty to Allah and fear Him and speak always the truth. He will direct you to do righteous good deeds and will forgive you your sins. And whosoever obeys Allah and His Messenger has indeed achieved a great success. From this ayah we notice that Allah سبحانه وتعالى says يا أيها الذين آمنوا أيها الذين اتقوا الله Keep your duty to Allah and fear Him. And speak always the truth. The benefit will be, He first will direct you to do righteous good deeds, and the second one, He will forgive you your sins. أَمَّا بَعْدْ فَإِنَا أَصْدَقَ الْحَدِيثِ كِتَابُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَقَيْرَ الْهَدِي هَدِي مُحَمَّدٍ صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وَشَرَّ الْأُمُورِ مُحْدَثَاتُهَا وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار. It proceeds that the most truthful speech is that of Allah's book the Quran and the best of guidance is that of Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم and the worst of evils are innovations which are foreign to the true teachings of Islam and every innovated matter in religion is a bid'ah and every bid'ah is a ضلالة is a misguidance and every ضلالة is a misfire of hell. No may Allah's mercy be upon me and you. That this talk deals with an issue that may be confusing to some. 
and may be clear to others. Many have come to know about Sufism as the highest form of Islamic practices, a kind of rich tradition that only the special and very pious can adhere to and practice. To them, if Sufism is criticized, they see that an insult to Islam. Some, however, consider Sufism as a spiritual path to which Muslims and non-Muslims can associate with. The fact, however, is that the, rela the reality of Sufism is known only to the few amongst Muslims. This, in part, is due to the very deceptive nature of propagating the teachings of Sufism by its advocates, who present Sufism as a very special way of worship that is linked to the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, as they claim, and his noble companions and those who follow their path in righteousness. But is it really the case? Attempting to answer this question about Sufism, I would like to divide the subject into the following parts. The first part, what does the word Sufism mean? The second, the development of Sufism. The third, we will cover hopefully in this talk two or four important concepts of Sufism. I ask Allah the Most High to assist me in relating the truth and to make this opportunity for sincerely done for His most honorable faith. The first, the first part of the talk, the meaning of Sufism. The origin of the word and its derivatization. There are many opinions regarding the origin of this word, which can be summarized as follows. Number one, some Sufis like to link the name to Ahlul Sufta, people of Al Sufta, who were at the time of the Prophet The Sufis claim that there are great resemblances between the Sufi and Ahlul Sufa. Between the Sufi Adab and Ahlul Sufa. And who are Ahlul Sufa? These were poor people from the Muhajireen, the immigrants, who were driven away from their homes and had no money or families, nor a place to stay. The Prophet وسلم, and the companions عنهم, assisted them, and he وسلم, allowed them to stay in a courtyard by his mosque. The fact, however, is that those poor Muslims resorted to the mosque out of necessity. Their numbers increased at certain times and decreased at other times. Some of them stayed longer than others. So they were not a specific group united on something at the point. They were not a specific group united on something. Sufism in its early stages stressed the concepts of detachment from the world life, poverty, isolation, etc. The people of us so far did not choose such concepts. Here is the underlying difference, the main difference. They did not choose 
such a concept. They were in need and the Muslims helped them. As simple as that. They were in need and Muslims helped them. They did not isolate themselves. In fact, they engaged in jihad whenever it was announced. When Allah the Most High bestowed from His bounties upon the Muslims, some of them became free of one and were among the richest of the Sahaba. And others became leaders in some Muslim land, from Ahlul Sufa, from these poor Muhajirin. The Sufis now would like to establish a linkage with the Prophet's era and claim as well that he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, approved the early seed of Sufism in their sight, meaning Ahlul Sufa. You see now the catch? You see the linkage that they try to make. <coughs> so the Sufis would like to establish a linkage with the Prophet's era and claim as well that he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, approved the early seed of Sufism exemplified in Ahlul in addition, and from a linguistic point of view, <coughs> so from the concept point of view, it's invalid. The linkage that they claim is invalid, it's false. Also from the linguistic point of view, <coughs> to derive Sufism from a Sufa is wrong. The derivation is wrong. Because the correct term would be what? Sufism. Sufa, not Sufism. Is that clear? So, from the concept point of view, and also from the linguistic point of view, the linkage to other sofa is what is in that. So this is the first uh, thing that they, uh, the origin of the word, some of them claim to be linked to Ahlu as sofa And we know that this is, alhamdulillah, false. The second, they say it's derived from As-Saf al-Awwal, As-Saf al-Awwal, which is the first row. The third row. As-Saf al-Awwal. Some Sufis claim that Sufism comes from As-Saf al-Awwal, which is the first row, standing before the hands of Allah, the most mighty and most majestic, by virtue of the high determination and eagerness towards Allah in their hearts and by positioning their inner before Him. You know, being in As-Saf al-Awwal in Salah, for example, right? Eagerness to Allah. This term is far from being also linguistically uh, applicable. For if it were so, the term would be Safi. If you derive it, what would be the derivation? Safi. As-Safi al-Awwal. Al-Ishtiqaq, the derivation would be Safi and not Sufi. Is that clear? So, this is also uh, the case with this link. Now, other Sufis claim the term, this is the third one, is derived from as-safa, which means clearness, purity, and sincerity. As-safa. This is disputed by other Sufis. Other Sufis think that this is not right. And also, linguistically, it does not fit. Because the derived term would be, what? Safwi, Safawi, or Safai. Not Sufi. Is that clear? Huh? It would be what? From Safa, Safai, Safawi, Safawi, or Safai, but not Sufi. You see the derivation. The fourth, it is said that their title is derived from Sufa. From Sufa. Sufa. 
The name, this is where Sufa, is the name of some people who used to serve the Kaaba. Of Sufa, the name for some people who used to serve the Kaaba in the pre-Islamic era of Jahidiyya. And who used to go in seclusion to the Masjid al-Haram, in the sanctified mosque. This was reported by Imam Ibn al-Jawzi in his book, Tabriz Ibn. Although this affiliation may be linguistically sound, because you say As-Sufa, Sufi, it may be linguistically what? Sound, it is rejected because of three points. Number one, the people of Sufa were not well known to be remembered by most of the early Sufi. They were not really well known. Those who used to serve the Kaaba in the pre-Islamic uh, era, they were not well known to be remembered by most of the early Sufi. The second, had this affiliation been correct, it would have been known in the times of the Sahaba also. However, such an affiliation was not known to them, was not known to the Sahaba. The third, uh, true devout worshippers do not accept to be affiliated with the tribe from the Jahiliyyah times. You see, they don't like such a linkage. The true devout worshippers do not like to be affiliated with the tribe from the Jahiliyyah times. This is mentioned by Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahu Allah. To the fifth one, Sufya, the historian and philosopher Abu Rayhan al-Bayruni, who died in 440 of Hijrah, mentioned that the word Sufism springs from the Greek term Sufya, meaning wisdom, meaning wisdom. The Greeks were the first to speak of the concept of, now look to this concept now, the Greeks were the first to speak of the concept of Wahdat al-Wujud, Wahdat al-Wujud, unity of existence, unity of existence, meaning all existence is a single reality which is Allah, and that everything we see is one aspect of the essence of Allah. This is the Wahdat al-Wujud, the concept of Wahdat al-Wujud. The Greek were the first to speak of such concept, and I repeat what it means, unity of existence. Meaning everything you see is in essence who? Allah. Ta'ala Allah, Allah is high above what they attribute to him. Though one cannot confirm or deny the authenticity of this derivation, it is certain that Sufism during its course of development was highly influenced by the Greek and the Hindu philosophies. We got to the sixth point, or the sixth term. It is Asur, Asur. You know what Asur? Wall included, clothing, wool. Asur. Wall included, clothing. Many Sufis from the past and the present consider that the term Sufism refers to the wearing of woolen clothes, called Sufis. This is also the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Khaldun, the historian, inclined to this opinion in his Muqaddimah, Muqaddimah ibn Khaldun. Many Orientalists are also of this view. Although this is the most common opinion regarding the derivation of the term, it is still disputed by some Sufis like Al-Qushayri, the 
one who wrote a Risal al-Qushayriya. This is a, an important reference in Sufism. He died in 465. Al-Qushayri claimed that the Sufis were not specialized in wearing or in wearing woolen clothes, as in his book Al-Risala Al-Qushayriya. Nevertheless, the desire by many Sufis to affiliate their names with this origin, many Sufis really affiliate their names to this origin, explains their exaggeration in matters of worship, detachment from the worldly life, abandoning local means of earning, property, children, etc. So they like to link it, to make the linkage to a soul, because the soul, you know, is rough. This is a symbol of detachment from, you know, softness, from this life, from that, you know, anything that will link you to, or attachment to this worldly uh, life. On the other hand, wearing woolen clothes is not something meritorious or raises the status of the Muslim of Allah. You understand? You need to put on soul, it does not make you what? High on the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for just putting on soul. Had it been so, the Prophet would have preferred it over other clothes. In fact, he described the order of the wool upon sweating. As related by Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, I made a black frock for the Prophet and he put it on. But when he sweated in it, he noticed the odor of the wool and he threw it away. The narrator of this hadith said, I think he said he liked good smell. This hadith is reported by Abu Dawood and Ahmed and others. And Al-Hakim said it is authentic according to the conditions of Imam Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And Al-Zahabi agreed that it is authentic. And Al-Shayat Nasr al-Albani rahimahullah reported in his uh, book Al-Sahih. And in regard, or, in, or rather in an agreed upon hadith, which was, which was related by Anas radiallahu anhu, he said, كان أحب الثياب إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أن يلبسها الحبرة. حديث مصطفق عليه. The most beloved garment to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم to wear was the حبرة which is a kind of a Yemeni cloth made of cotton, used to be from the best to it. The seventh opinion is that the term Sufism is not derived, is not derived. This opinion is held by some important figures in Sufism like Al-Qushayri and Al-Hajuri and they said it's just a given title, that's what they said. Just a given title which cannot be derived, or which is not derived actually. Such a claim is a strange and very weak one, because none of titles adopted by any sect lacks the meaning associated with it. There must be a meaning, or it's just a mere title. And we know that all of these sects who carry certain titles, there were meanings associated with what? With the titles that they were known. Right. These were now the most important, now we got what, seven opinions, right? And the most highly held opinion is that it is derived from a soul, right? As many sources, although there is a dispute among some of them. These were the most important things regarding the origin of the word sophism. Such differences regarding this term is due to the mystic nature that falls sophism. 
in esoteric concepts which is open to all kinds of interpretations. That's why we got this so many opinions. It's really due to the mystic nature, esoteric, botany, mystic of Sufism. Any Sufi master could add his own methodology and concept based upon his own experience of what they call or refer to as Zawq, as Sufi. As meaning the special experience by the Sufi master. He can add his, you know, many concepts based upon his own uh, experience, which is called as This rendered Sufism limitless. You know, if, if every one of them you know, adds from his own Zawq, it renders Sufism limitless in terms of its doctrines and ways, and that's the case. So many doctrines, so many tariqas, so many ways. One of the leading Sufi contemporary figures by the name of Dr. Abdul Hamid Mahmoud, who was the Sheikh of Al-Azhar himself, said, the opinion regarding the meaning of At-Tasawwuf did not yet reach a conclusive result. Did not reach a, a conclusive result. Because again of the mystic nature of this, uh, of this uh, group. Astiraj al who died in 378, mentioned that the definition of Sufism exceeds a hundred. While Al-Sahrawardi, another Sufi who died in 632 Hijrah, related that the saying of the Sufi sheikhs about the meaning of Tasawwuf exceeds 1,000. Exceeds 1,000. One of the later Sufis by the name of Ibn Ajiba, Ibn Ajiba who died in 1224, related that Sheikh Zarruq, another Sufi master who died in 889, mentioned that it reached about 2,000 definitions. 2,000 definitions. The definitions describe Sufism as being linked to concepts and practices also. Not only concepts. They range from poverty, perseverance, exclusion, withdrawal from the world, secrecy, deception, depriving the soul, wandering in the land, singing, dancing, wearing wall clothes, ecstasy, inward transformation, spiritual development, all the way to the major concept of Sufism which is Wahdat al-Wujud. All these ways will lead you to know according to them the reality of Allah, meaning that Allah is everything, the unity of existence. That all you see is, is what Allah in essence. In fact, careful study of its history and of its men brings one to the same conclusion that there is no specific and comprehensive meaning of Sufism. Despite this, it can be easily said that it represents an accommodation of beliefs. It represents accommodation of beliefs. Experiences highly stressed. Experiences highly stressed philosophies and methodologies of various degrees of divergence from the Qur'an and authentic Sunnah and the way of the Sahib. This is what we can say about Sufism. That it represents an accommodation of beliefs. Accommodation of beliefs. 
experiences, philosophies and methodologies of varied degrees of divergence from the Quran and authentic Sunnah and the way of the Salaf. Largely comprised within such accommodation are certain fundamental methods that shape Sufism. Mainly, number one, some of the characteristics meaning of Sufism, number one, limitless, limitless, figurative interpretation of the text and of the sayings of their own matters. Limitless, figurative interpretation of the text and of the sayings of their own matters. Second, classifying the deen, the religion, into Zahir, outward, and this is to them the Sharia, and this is applicable to the common Muslims, to the common, to the common Muslims, and Ba'atin, hidden, which is known only to the masters and mystics. You see, they divided the deen into two categories, Al-Zahir, Wal-Ba'atin. Al-Zahir, meaning this Sharia, the outward, you say, Al-Zahir, is for the common Muslims. But the hidden, al-Batin, is whom is only to the special, to the elite, their members. You understand? Meaning that what you read in the Quran, the outward meaning, which is immediately understood to you, this is for you. But it has what they call a hidden meaning, which you don't know. That this hidden meaning is only known to whom? To the master. This fikr is al-fikr al-batini. Al-fikr what? Al-batini. Esoteric. Mystic. The third, the third thing which shapes Sufism is accommodation of any deviation in matters of creed, worship, or more. You can accommodate anything. The extreme Sufis accommodate all creeds and all sorts of innovations as we will come across some of them. Fourth, there is a strange and deviated relationship between the Sufi master and the disciple. Bayna shaykhi wal murid. Very strange and deviated relationship between the Sufi master and the murid, the disciple, the Sufi adept. Fifth, they have a state of what they call a state of kashf. The Sufi masters claim that through kashf, through this state of kashf, the state of kashf which is claimed by masters in the Sufi orders, in it, through this state, they perceive and witness all of the realities of existence as well as those of the unperceived realities, al-ghayb. Meaning, no barrier. They reach a stage where they can see the realities of the witness and of the what? Of Al-Ghayb. Of the witness realities and of the unperceived realities. No barrier, nothing. No, no veil. You know, the veils will open up. And the Sufi master reaches this stage and he sees the realities of, it, of existence as Shahid and Wal-Ghayb also. You understand? Six. 
they emphasize dreams. Dreams. Maqamat they call. Or manamat from manamat from now. Manam. Manamat. Dreams. Fabricated stories and or a hadith as well as something known as shatahat. Shatahat. Intense and wild emotional state of excitement and agitation arising from what they call sudden divine touches and during which the mystic utters unlawful, innovative and mystic words, hallucinations and in many cases and in many cases plain cooking. They fall into such states of what they call shatha that the master has, you know, fallen into a state of shatha. In this state he is under really intense and wild agitation, excitement and everything. Why? Because he suddenly received a divine touch. He suddenly received what? A divine touch. And he begins to utter, you know, certain things. And a lot of them are lawful. And in that regard, if you read them, a lot of them are plain cooked. Plain cooked. Yet they say their, their utterances are due to the mystic being in a state of spiritual intoxication, they say. For example, the, 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 the mystic may say, Praise be to me, Subhani. Under this shatha, in this state of high excitement, you know, which they call spiritual intoxication, that is under the divine touch, the mystic may say what? Subhani. You know, speaking of himself to be what? Uh, or, under my robe there is only God. Under my robe there is only what? There is only God. That he is God. Or Allah indwells in him. These are known as Sufi Shatahat. Shatahat al-Sufiya. Second part of this talk is, when did, did it all start? The history. History. The beginning and development of Sufism. And we put a subtitle, Innovation usually starts small, then they grow big. Be careful. Innovation usually starts to be what? Small. And then they grow. They grow what? Some scholars trace the seeds of Sufism to the early stages of the second century of Hijra calendar. To the early stages of the second century of the Hijri calendar. While others pointed out that the early features of it began before the year 200 of Hijrah. Before the year of 200 of Hijrah. The early deviation was exemplified in exaggerations in worship and extremism in avoidance of the worldly life. In the beginning, some people really became interested in leading what they call a pious life of Zuhd. A pious life of Zuhd, uh, a tenuous way of life leading. Patience, clemency, sincerity, truthfulness, although some of them exaggerated and or introduced innovation in the worship or the practice. Then those who attached themselves to such practices became lax in allowing singing and dancing, something, something which they refer as as samaa samaa sufi as samaa singing and dancing. Singing aimed at stimulating a state of ecstasy, a state of wajd, 
and excessive worship. This thing is done in order to get into a state of ecstasy, worship. As with every bid'ah, shaitan beautifies it in the eyes of its beholder and drives him to more bid'ah. Shaitan drives him to do more bid'ah. The sophism is just one case of the devil's deception, whereby he turns them away from knowledge and shows them that what matters is action. He told them what matters is action. He turned them away from knowledge. And you hear that amongst many of the people now who are affiliated with certain groups. They say, what is knowledge, you know? Let's come to action. Huh? Though many of them may have started with good intentions, we stress that. Though many of them may have started with good intentions, but they took off from the course of the Sunnah. They took off from the course of the Sunnah. And as we discussed last night, that intentions alone are not enough. The action itself has to, be, to abide by the way of Sharia. Remember that? During the third century, introduction of new concepts and practices became more evident. So we finish now with the first early, uh, the second century of Israel. Now, more new practices and, and concepts were introduced during the third century of Israel. Some became interested in monasticism, you know, monasticism, living like monks. Some of them started, you know, and that's one of the influence of the Christian, huh, of the Christianity. This is one influence from the Christian, uh, from the Christian folks, monasticism and practice. They were interested in living like monks, while others spoke of poverty, hunger, sleeplessness, wanderment in the land, seclusion, dancing, lamping, innovative forms of liquor, etc. Many abandoned marriage. Many of them abandoned for marriage. And many of them also abandoned seeking the means of sustenance. They said we depend upon Allah. This is not, this is not dependent. To say that we, you know, stop seeking the means of sustenance. This is like, you know, someone saying that I would like a son without getting married. You see? Many abandoned marriages seeking the means of sustenance. Others exaggerated in disassociating themselves from hadith and its knowledge. This is, and hadith and knowledge, is, this is for the common Muslim. It will make you dizzy. Come to the way, the spiritual way, the way of our masters. On the course of this development, the masters would put certain regulations that made them, and it made them see themselves as the special, who has a special inward knowledge that takes the person directly to Allah. This is how the masters began influencing their followers. That, you know, the, the master's way will lead you shortly to Allah through inward practicing. You understand? Is that clear? They are referred to themselves as being Ahlul Batin or the carriers, the holders of Al-Ilm al-Batini. Al-Ilm, what? 
esoteric moment, the hidden moment, which marked the beginning of innovative differentiation between al-ilm al-shari'i and al-ilm al-batani, that's where the bid'ah started. Started being saying that there is al-ilm shari'i and there is al-ilm batani. Al-ilm shari'i, this is for, for the common Muslims, and al-ilm al-batani is for the elite and masters who got the special inward moments as they claim. By the end of this century, the third century, Sufism spread, and Sufi orders began to sprout, and some of it, of it divine, or, or, or some of it, uh, deviant creeds, like the creed of Shadul, in dwelling of Allah in creation, which is what, this is one form, or the major creed of whom? Of the Christians. The indwelling of Allah in creation. The indwelling of Allah in whom? In whom? According to the Christians, in Isa, so Sufism spread and began to sprout and some of its deviant creeds like Al-Hulul, this is called Al-Hulul, Al-Hulul. Hulul meaning indwelling of Allah in, in creation, which is called incarnation. Huh? Incarnation. And the infamous Al-Hallaj, who carried this, who held to this opinion, was killed in 309, and he was crucified for his creed of Hulul. He was crucified for his creed of Hulul, of incarnation. This Al-Hallaj is something to many Sufis, they look upon highly. They look upon him highly, Al-Hallaj. So this is the first really uh, strong deviation that occurred by the end of the third century. Another form is called Ittihad. So we, sp- we spoke about Hulul, and now the other, the other deviant creed is Ittihad, which is union between Allah and the Creator. That there is union between Allah and the Creator. This is called Ittihad. Were adopted by some of their extreme masters. Hulul and Ittihad were adopted by their, some of their extreme masters. The new states of Sufism were defined also, and the masters spoke of specific terminology defining such a state. Now, they started adding from their own experiences, from their thoughts, certain stages of Sufism, stages and states. They call it maqamat, they call it what? Maqamat. That the Sufi adapts in order to reach Allah, he has to go through all these different stages. Like, for example, they started now defining certain terminology, like the terminologies of al-fana, al-fana, annihilation, annihilation in Allah. You travel, you reach a point where you annihilate in Allah, annihilation in Allah. They define kashf, which we spoke about earlier, state of kashf, wajd, ecstasy, sama and other philosophical terms. During the 4th century, Sufism was almost transformed into orders accommodating all sorts of bid'ah in aqidah and in itibah. Now, in the 4th century, during the 4th century, it transformed into orders. You know the order? Sufi order, they say. Tariqah. Tariqah Naqshtandiyya. Tariqah, you know, Shaziliyya. Tariqah... Tijaniyya, all these are Sufi tariqas, right? But before, in the, the beginning of this ordering, uh, started during the fourth, what? 
extension, introduction of orders, accommodating all sorts of bid'ah. The master will have his own his own tariqa, uh, his own order, and it will be named after him. Tariqa rifaiya, al jilaliya, al jashtiya, al naqshbandiya, al tiya tiya tiya, sahrawatiya, qadriya, idritiya, shishiya, yishiya. Sufism was almost transformed into orders accommodating all sorts of bid'ah and aqidah and istibah. It was a blend of every or for every sect. Among them you find al-Jahmiyyah, al-Mu'tazila, the Matridiyyah, the Ash'ariyyah, the Shia, you know, the philosopher, the Murji'i, the Jabri, and followers of all sorts of ahwa. These names that I mentioned are names of certain sects. Some of the sects of Ahl al It became a universal ground for Ahl al-Ahwa. Altogether are known as Ahl al-Ahwa. People of Hawa, lawly desires. Hawa in deen. They, they followed innovative religions, innovative ways in religion, in, in the deen of Allah. Ahl al-Ahwa. So, through which they penetrate in the name of the spiritual guidance. All these sects, I mean, it's It's irrelevant for the Sufis, whether you are a, a Murji'i, a Jabri, you know, whether you are a Mu'tazili, a Maturidi, as long as you are within the fold of Sufism, that's what really matters. And you abide by the Master's way, blindly. During the 6th century, a group of the mystic Sufis claiming to be descendants of the Prophet ﷺ, each established for himself a special Sufi order with special followers. During the 6th century. Now, some of the mystic Sufis, they claim that they are descendants of what? Of the Prophet Muhammad Each established for himself a special way, a special order, a special tariqa. So, Al-Rifai appeared in Iraq. Al-Rifai appeared in Iraq. Al-Badawi and Al-Shadili in Egypt. These orders branched into other orders also. In this century, the 6th century and the next two, the 7th and the 8th, the Sufi fitna reached its climax, where the aqidah of wahdat al-wujud began. The aqidah of wahdat al-wujud. Also more Sufi orders were coming up, appearances of new bid'ah, building of graves, magnifying the graves, innovative celebration and the practices, all of this leads to the decline from the 6th, 7th and 8th century. This was supported by the establishment in Egypt of the Ubaidiyah state, known as the Fatimite state. Al-Dawla al-Ubaidiyah in Egypt during these these times were established and which spread its influence over many Muslim lands. This, al-Dawla al-Ubaidiyah, accommodated all sorts of bid'ah and supported the Sufism and others. Finally, during the later centuries, the 9th, 10th, and 11th, the Sufi authors became in the thousands. And the Sufi practices and affiliation spread over the entire Muslim world. Today, Sufism has establishment, preachers, funding, an almost unrestricted movement of its people across the borders of many Muslim and non-Muslim lands. 
as to its most important objective, as to its most important objective, I leave it to a Sufi enthusiast, well known in the circles of Sufism, by the name of Sayyid Hussein Nasr, who stated the objectives of Sufism to be, and I quote, all that we can do is to stress that the Sufi teaching center upon two fundamental creeds, Wahdat al-Wujud, Wahdat al-Wujud, and Al-Insan al-Kamil, the perfect man, Al-Insan al-Kamil, we'll discuss it then. But, Sayyid Hussain Nasr, the Sufi enthusiast, says that what the main objective, that, or what really Sufism stresses, the reality of it, they stress the concept of Wahdat al-Wujud. You know this concept? which is that existence is all one and that existence and reality is what? the essence of Allah high Allah above what they attribute to him and the other is Al-Insan Al-Kamil the perfect man what is Al-Insan Al-Kamil? in the world of Sufism and remember we spoke about all these terminologies that they bring about this is one of their terminologies Al-Insan Al-Kamil in the world of Sufism is that barrier that barrier qualified with both steps qualified with both the essence of Allah and the essence of creation of man that this insan al-kamil is the barrier quote in the course who is qualified with the attributes of Allah and the attributes of who? of creation man that's why you recall him al-insan al-kamil the perfect perfect man and he is the one who comprises all the words of the divine and that of creation, the complete and the partial. He deserves the names of Allah's essence as that and the divine equality. He deserves as that, you know, as that of Allah, meaning his essence, he deserves as that and he also deserves the divine quality of Allah. The Sufi mystics refer to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, as being the perfect man. The Sufi mystics refer to Prophet Muhammad as being the perfect man, qualified with both attributes, the divine huh? and what? And that? Man, created, created. Yeah, they refer to Prophet Muhammad as being an insan al-kamil, an insan al-kamil, the perfect man. Also, they say, Sometimes you find it written as not an insan al-kamil, but it's the same thing. It's what you